Hello and welcome to episode 132 of the CogniCast, the podcast by Cognitech Inc. about software and the people who create it. This week, host Karen Meyer talks with fellow Cognitech Jeb Beach. But before we get started, we do have a few announcements. Closure Conj 2017 tickets are still available both for the main event, which makes it sound a little bit like a boxing match, but also for the pre-conference training. Go on over to 2017.closure-conj.org to sign up. And if you are going to be at the Conj and want to talk about some specific topic with your fellow closurists, the sign up for the unsessions are also up. Go have a look on github.com slash closureconj slash closureconj2017 slash wiki slash unsessions, or maybe just Google it. The Conj is coming up on October 12th through the 14th, so don't hesitate. There's also a trio of Closure Bridge events coming up. There's one in San Francisco on September 15th and 16th. There's one in Melbourne, Australia on September 22nd and 23rd. And there's one in Berlin on October 6th and 7th. If you aren't familiar, Closure Bridge is dedicated to increasing diversity within the programming community by offering free, beginner-friendly closure programming workshops to people from underrepresented groups. So if you're interested, have a look at www.closurebridge.org events. Well, that's about it. So on the Karen and Jeb in episode 132 of the CogniCast. everyone. Today is August 25th and this is the Cognacast. I'm Karen Meyer and today it's my great pleasure to welcome Jeb Beach to the show. Thank us, uh, thank you for being with us, uh, Jeb. Thanks for having me. Yeah, and uh, to those who, who don't know, Jeb uh, works with me here at Cognitect. So I've recently gotten the pleasure to work with him on a project. Um, but even though um, we've been at Cognitect together, how many years now? It's so, three, three for me. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. It, it's it's been a while. Um, I still feel like I have a lot to get to know um, you still. So I, I'm I'm really um, excited to be able to talk with you and um, to get to know you better and to let all our listeners know you better too. Thanks. Yeah, I feel the same way. So I guess the first thing, like I know about you, is you live down south, right? Where it's hot. Yeah. Yeah, I live in the panhandle of Florida in a pretty rural area too. So kind of, it's called Panama City is the name of the the town that I live in. Um, And I'm originally from South Florida. Well, I guess I'm from Tampa, Um, but uh, I moved up here a few years back and it's interesting. It's not exactly like a, a booming, you know, hub of closure development here. So uh, I've I've been working remotely since about 2010. Wow. uh, Yeah, for a while now. Wow. So uh, like down in in Florida, and 
this may just be me, but I always think about like alligators, right? Are there, so are there alligators down there with, with you? Yeah, there definitely are. There, up here, like uh, where we are, there are fewer because um, I'm I'm about as far north as you can go. I think I'm about uh, 40 minutes south of the the border to uh, Alabama, but uh, um, we see them still here. Like occasionally someone will get one in their pool or something like that. But I remember growing up down in South Florida, like my dad was a, he was a sheriff's deputy and he'd get calls. He has pictures of himself and like, you know, six other people hauling the, hauling these animals out of people's <laughs> pools in the eighties and stuff like that. So it definitely happens. <laughs> yeah. That's just yeah. crazy. Like it, where I live up in Ohio, you know, we have like raccoons that, you know, <laughs> I mean, they're smaller. They're not like alligators. I don't know. It's just, it's like, just a whole, whole, whole nother level. I think of that. We have, we have some other weird things too. Actually, now that you mentioned it, Karen, there's, there's like a, an invasion of pythons. That's one thing. Oh my gosh. So there's gosh. snakes. Yeah, which is weird. I've actually seen one up here. It was, it was pretty creepy looking. Um, you know, no offense to any snake lovers out there, but, but seeing a python in Florida, it's just not natural. You know, so you see like a, this python in the woods, and it just something looks wrong. So, and Wait, then we where, have, where did you see this? This was just in the, in the woods, uh, in the country, uh, about 40 miles outside of Panama city. So, so you I were just taking woods. a walk like, hello, I'm just going to take <laughs> yeah. a walk in the woods and there's a python. Yeah. I was walking through some woods. I was out there. Um, what was I doing that day? I was, I think I went shooting that day. And so I was walking through the woods and yeah, just a python randomly, like on the ground. I almost stepped on him. my little cousin, like. He, he yelled at me at the last second, and he was just sitting there. Was it like a big one? one? Was it? No, it wasn't that big. It was oh, about okay. four feet long, I think. So it wasn't too bad. But it was it was weird looking. Like I've seen a lot of other snakes here. You know, we've got coral snakes and rattlesnakes and all kinds of all kinds of dangerous things here. And they 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 look natural, like they fit in, you know, because they're supposed to be here. But pythons don't. They just look they look very disturbing. <laughs> Wow. I can't explain why, but just intuitively it felt it felt weird. So, and then we have another thing too. We have uh, lionfish. Yeah, so we have like a we have lionfish which are taking over uh, taking over the waters like all around Florida. So they they come in and then they kill off all the uh, the indigenous uh, species of fish. So they're they're like a hazard. And are they poisonous? I don't know. They have like these barbs on them, and I guess if you if if they if they you know come into contact with you it hurts but I'm not sure if it's poison or, or what the what the uh, deal with that is. Okay, so let me uh, so fish that are potentially poisonous but at least sharp and spiky. Yeah. Pythons. <laughs> yeah. And alligators. And spiders too. And There's lots of and bad spiders. stuff. Spiders. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, it's I'm, a nice place, really. <laughs> <laughs> oh goodness! Well, um, actually, and I totally skipped over this, and we were starting to talk about all the dangerous stuff down in Florida. Um, <laughs> we're supposed to be talking about art. Oh yeah. Okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> although you could talk about like I don't know Python art, but uh, usually in the beginning yes. of the show, we're supposed to ask our guests about like an experience of art, like something that. Um, really resonates with you it could be dance it could be visual arts it could be netflix uh, just whatever is meaningful <laughs> to you okay well uh this is just something i enjoyed 
just because I'm a fan. But uh, it happened recently, and it was pretty cool, so I, I got this. So I went to see Metallica perform in Atlanta in July. This was interesting to me because I was like a big fan back in the in the 90s. And um, the last time I'd seen him was 2000 or 2001. I'd seen him a couple of times before that, too. And like I kind of quit following them, you know, at some point because there was a whole thing with Napster. Remember? And like Jason Newstead, who's the bass guitarist, he left. And Kurt uh, James, sorry, he cut his hair. You know, it's like. I don't know, sometime around the end of the 90s, they just kind of like started to change and modernize. They recorded some songs with an orchestra. It, their whole image was changing, and I got kind of turned off. Like, I honestly didn't think that was going to go well for them. And I think like a lot of fans, I just didn't want my image of them tarnished, you know? So I kind of checked out for, I don't know, what is it, 15 years? <laughs> so, but I think, I guess I was wrong, because I, I went to this concert in Atlanta in July, and they were amazing. Still, like, absolute masters of their craft, and just so good. I mean, they're just such great performers. It was, like, the most fun I've had in, you know, a concert for, like, a really long time. And the the thing that was interesting to me was, like, a lot of their recent music, it sounds like it could have come off of one of their early albums from, from the 80s. And... I just really enjoyed it. James's voice sounds better than it sounds better than ever. The chemistry of the band is still it's great. It's totally rejuvenated. So that was really cool. At the start of the show, um, James Hetfield he gave this speech about diversity and like thanked everyone for coming and uh, talked about how their music is for all people. And that was really interesting and unique. I think that was recorded and it's out there on YouTube. So for any for any Metallica fans, definitely uh, look up the Atlanta 2017 live uh, live performance. It was really good. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so so were you worried at, at all? Like right before you went to the concert, you're like, oh no, is this gonna ruin all my memories of them? Definitely, you, yeah. I was really worried about that. Yeah, I was. I, I I was so excited to see them again, and and I was conflicted because I just I wanted to kind of remember them, you know, the way they were, but it was so neat to see like how they've kind of come full circle and they've, they've, they've fixed all these problems that I think were kind of plaguing them in the, in the 2000s and the 2000, 2010s. And they've kind of gotten back to, I think they've gotten back to that classic sound and even maybe improved on it. I don't know. So that was cool. That is cool. Me. Well, hopefully other people can, that are interested can um, not be worried that they're going to ruin <laughs> Yeah, I would definitely say go back. Yeah, definitely <laughs> go back. Like it, I, I, I regret having stayed away for so long. They, they were awesome. They really were. Okay, so, so it's safe, everyone. You, you can go yeah. listen to them again. <laughs> they haven't gone on the off the rails. So that's nope. awesome. So uh, yeah, you, so you've been writing some um, uh, blogs for our uh, website, the Cognitech, the Cognitech site, and. Um, I have heard that uh, at least one of them, maybe two, have been like the most popular this year. Yeah, I heard that. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> I, I guess it makes sense. I mean, I uh, it, they're very simple posts too, so they're 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 easy to you know for most people to digest. But I guess I, I kind of the the subject that I wrote about it really resonated with me. So so maybe it it also resonated with other people out there that are in a similar. Uh, similar predicament that I was. 
So, um, so yeah. So, what what predicament were 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 you in that that? Uh, yeah, UI development. Ah, uh, UI development. <laughs> right. Favorite thing. So, I've been doing a lot of UI development for like the past five years. I'm not exactly sure why. Um, it just kind of happens, and it keeps happening. A lot of my remote projects have been like you know have been um, very heavy on the front end, and since I've been with Cognitech, I've I've been in that role of like the front end developer uh, more often than not. It's not my first choice, you know, UI work. I don't have any particular problem with it other than, uh, you know, I kind of enjoy working on the back end and sometimes I miss that. But I, I noticed as I started programming Clojure professionally and, and finally got into to ClojureScript a few years ago that using ClojureScript, just using ClojureScript was making my UI development experience a lot better. I don't know if you've experienced that at all, but like just just closure script helped things a lot for me. I mean, I really I started like it was just you know having that tool set like right in the browser. I don't know. It it bumped up my experience a lot, but it still wasn't uh it still wasn't like something I enjoyed, I guess. You know, that was still like somewhat painful, you know. I uh, I was on a project recently, and we were looking at a, a, a UI that was um, uh, we we're looking at a UI that was fairly complicated. It was for single sign-on for uh, a pretty big company, and the flows were really complicated and nuanced, like migrating their legacy, so, you know, migrating their legacy users over to the new authentication strategy, and you know, supporting new users and multi-factor authentication and all that stuff. Right? It was it was not trivial. And uh, and so the code, as you'd expect, was pretty complex. Like just reading through the logging code and trying to understand it was um, was difficult for me. So uh, I suggested I suggested that we take a, a stab at rewriting that code, that logging code, uh, just using a simple state machine as a, as a model. You know, actually, let me back up for a sec. Can I can I back up? Yeah, of course you can back up. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I want to talk about like how this all started yeah, yeah. for me. Uh, so before even Cognitech, so I said I've done like I said I've done like uh, a lot of UI work in the in the past few years as I've been working with Cognitech and as I've been doing remote work before that, but it goes back before before that. Like I've always I've always found myself in a role of of doing user interface work. I think all of us do. Like a lot of people, I think, consider themselves full stack developers. It's pretty common. So this isn't anything that's uncommon. But um, I think about like my UI experiences over time. I started out in Java and doing like AWT and Swing. And then there was Java server pages. And then there was all these frameworks like Struts. And uh, and then um, uh, RIA frameworks like, I don't know if you if you've used Silverlight at all or Java Media Framework or, you know, these things. And after like 10 years of, of UI frameworks, you know, you get you get burnt out on learning the new framework. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yep. I mean, framework I think fatigue. That, yeah, that's, that's, is that a thing? It's a thing. Oh, okay. That's a perfect <laughs> word for it. <laughs> I remember I was on this, uh, this project in like 2009 and um, I was a consultant and they wanted to build a UI using Java server faces, which was like, this is the flavor of, I think it's still around. I, I don't know. Um, but anyways, it's a, it's a, like a, 
a framework for building web applications with Java, JSF. And I could not bring myself to like read a book about JSF and write, you know, this idiomatic Java server faces code. I guess I was just broken by that point. <laughs> and I remember um, for whatever reason, you know, I'd been like reading about state machines or something. And so I just decided, okay, I'm going to try this. I'm going to use a state machine to build this UI. And it worked out great. And, uh, and I really liked it. And uh, I liked the code. Um, I didn't end up having to drink the JSF Kool-Aid. And uh, unfortunately, they, <laughs> they took it and they ended up redoing it. Uh, but so it wasn't exactly a success. But what I took away from it was, you know, I'd use this like time-tested model for computation uh, to build this UI, and and uh, that made the process of doing it like a lot more tolerable for me. Um, so from then on, from that point forward, it's it's a it's a strategy that I've used in various UIs since then. So that's like what seven seven eight years ago, um, and so uh, the the origin of the blog posts the, the blog post is because on a recent project um, that's what we did. We decided to uh, we decided we had a pretty complicated UI, like I said, single sign-on for a fairly big, uh, fairly big and complex uh, set of set of workflows. And um, and when I looked at the existing code, I had a hard time understanding it. You know, just reading through, you know, how, like when you do bottom-up development on UI code, you start hacking components together, and and then you you know you wire them up with some events, and then you know you end up with like conditional logic and and, and flow uh, flow decisions being made in your event handling code, and so um, to understand the 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 UI app, you have to like read through all the code. You know, you have to look at all the event handlers and figure out what's what's changing state and um, understand all the the decisions. And so that was hard. I, I had a, I had a tough time doing it. So we ended up rewriting that uh, that UI just as an experiment using this. Um, Using this uh, state machine-based approach, and um, I, I, I guess the inspiration for the the actual articles themselves was from the reaction of the developers that I was working with. Um, I definitely saw that like aha moment that people have, you know, like when you you hit on a good abstraction for something, um, and I saw that multiple times. I had it, and then when we showed the people that I was working with and we showed it to the rest of the team, I think everyone more or less liked it. Um, and that was kind of further confirmed by the fact that it ended up bleeding into uh, the rest of the, the application. Like people just kind of went off on their own and, you know, used this state machine based approach. And uh, it was, it was, it was, I guess, simple and intuitive enough that people could put it to use and, and got benefit out of it without, without a whole lot of work, without, you know, um, having to do a lot of learning. Nice. Um, and that's why I like it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So th there were two articles um, that you wrote, I, can't, I guess, around the state machine. So the, the, the first one is, um, is just more about kind of the general concept of using state machines. Is that? Yeah. Yeah. The first one was like the why, like why exactly. It was like, you know, the, the benefits that you get from it or maybe the trade-offs, but I think mostly benefits that you get from using it, um, you know, versus that bottom-up, uh, bottom-up, like, ad hoc kind of 
development that I, that I mentioned. The main thing that I think that that article talks about is that, or the point of the article is that you end up with this model for the for the control flow for for the for the flow of your of your user interface, um, a simple model, you know, that you can, thanks to Clojure, especially like Clojure's data literals, uh, you end up with a, a model that you can like, you can look at and understand really easily. I mean, it's basically just a map, um, and that you can also take and you can visualize it. You know, you can turn it into a state transition diagram uh, fairly right. easily, also. Mm -hmm. So. Yeah, and so the article for for those listening is called a "Restate Your UI Using State Machines to Simplify User Interface Development," um, and we'll put a link in it for the show um, notes later. So, are, are this is, did you actually generate these state transitions? Because there's some diagrams in the blog. So, th did that actually just come from the code, and then you translating it to diagrams? Yeah, that came from the code. That was from there's a, a library out there that I made called. Um, FSM viz and uh, you know finite state machine viz and it's uh just generates a graph uh, graph viz diagram from uh, like the basic state machine uh, map kind of structure that we we talked about in that article and uh, it's pretty simple uh, it needs it needs some work I think to handle uh, some you know more complex uh, state transition diagrams but it works pretty well for the for the basic cases. And we used that on this project that I was talking about too. We, so uh, one thing that uh, we had was pretty good technical documentation. Like I really, uh, these guys did a great job. These people did a great job of putting together like tech, technical documentation before we even started on this project, which was awesome. And mostly used uh, UML sequence diagrams. But one of the things that sequence diagrams have a hard time capturing is like, you know, conditional flows or mm. decisions. Mm -hmm. And so we were able to replace some of those with um, state transition diagrams that we generated from the code. And uh, so that was definitely a win, I think. And I think those diagrams were more clear than the, than the sequence diagrams and more accurately, you know, reflect the type of stuff that um, those type of conditional, conditional flows. Cool. So it's not, it wasn't only just making your code clearer and more enjoyable for you to develop and easier to communicate across the team, but it was actually communicating to people the non-technical. Is that right? Yeah. 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 yeah that was definitely a, a benefit of it too. Um, Very cool. So the second article that you wrote is um, is called "Restate Your UI: Creating a User Interface with Reframe and State Machines." So how how is that how how is it differ or kind of spin off of the first blog post? Well, the first one was the why. The first one is like you should use it because you're going to get a model that's going to make sense and be clear, and that you can you know uh, easily extend and. Uh, and also just how it or how it helps you to organize your code and you know remove move lift all of this um, decision making code out of your event handlers and kind of reduce them down to their essence, um, and uh, and then and the second one so it's the why the first one was the why the second one was like the how to so the second one is um, how to like from start to finish a complete example of how to do this how to do this process with a, a closure script for using a reframe, which is a, uh, I think a lot of people have heard of reframe. It's a, it's a, um, closure script library for working with react, uh, applications. That article 
it doesn't get into a lot of depth about reframe itself, um, but it mostly talks about like the design process of okay, taking taking a look at a UI and um, trying to figure out what are my states and what are my transitions. Trying to basically trying to build that state transition diagram for your UI, and then um, how to encode it, you know, as a as a map or or whatever closure data structure that you're using, and then. And then that's that's the first half. Then the second half of it is, you know, an explanation of how to implement it using uh, using ClojureScript uh, with specifically with this library that I mentioned called Reframe. Um, but I think maybe like the interesting thing about that about the design process, like when you're trying to decompose this UI or when you're trying to, you know, build your your state machine from. Uh, like a UI specification, maybe you've got like a mock-up or some natural language or something like that. Um, you know, when you when you think about the process of like writing writing down this this state transition diagram on paper, um, you think like I want to come up with the states and and then draw some arrows between them, but that actually turns out to be kind of hard. And and this this I, this is what we describe in the article. The UIs are event driven, and so you know your events are going to become your transitions in this state machine based approach. So really, what you end up doing is just focusing on the transitions, mm. um, and then your states kind of become evident after you you know kind of start walking through the transitions of your UI. So you think about it from that perspective, like what happens when I perform this click event, mm -hmm. you know. So, so did yeah, you, I, it seems like it would be like a really good match then with the kind of global state reflecting that um, that the React does, right? I think so. Yeah, yeah I, I do. I mean, I've like I said, I've used it for a long time um, in a variety of frameworks and stuff. So I, I I think it works with a variety of you know different UI UI frameworks. But yeah, you're right though. It is it is a, a good fit for it because really you do have to have one central representation of, you know, your current, the current state of things like the, where you are in this uh, state transition diagram. Um, and, and the cool thing about it, I think is that uh, you, you end up simplifying your state quite a bit when you take this approach, because what you end up doing is like, instead of, you know, a bunch of different bits of state, like, keeping track of, you know, whether a button is disabled or enabled or, you know, if a warning message is uh, an error message is being displayed or not and what it is really all you're and all you end up storing in your state is just what's my current state. Mm -hmm. And then whether or not that button is disabled, whether or not you're displaying a, uh, an error message, those are all functions of that of that state. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. It makes total sense. <laughs> so, uh, uh how, what did you think about um, Reframe? Did you do you, do you I, like using it or? Yeah, I really liked Reframe quite a bit. Um, yeah, Reframe was so I've I've had experience I think with like we used I've worked with Ohm a little bit and Ohm Next and I had a really good experience with Ohm and Ohm Next um, and then I've done a couple of uh, apps that were like basic reagent type apps with a you know a, a some uh, custom like proprietary framework built on top of them and uh and then this was more or less just like a straight vanilla reframe application like you, they used reframe from the start and um you know it was idiomatic reframe all the way through and 
I really enjoyed it. I think it's a it's a, it's a really cool uh, cool framework to work with, and also a really good fit for like a, a state machine type approach. I mean, it's clear when you read through the reframe documentations that they were thinking about state machines. You know, that was like probably a big inspiration. I would assume that was part of the inspiration for the whole reframe library. Oh, so, okay. yeah. So I, I think if it, I think that may have been, maybe that was why it, it was good. It was a good fit. I don't know. Maybe that contributed to it. Hmm. Very interesting. So um, I know another cool thing about you working at uh, Cognitect, which is uh, you are a Vim user, which I think in our company of Vim users are the minority. Is that is that correct? I think I think we are the minority. I am a Vim user. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think we're the minority everywhere you go uh, in terms of closure death. But but you've done some uh, work with uh, your development in uh, in closure in your Vim environment and and making it making it um, better and more productive. Uh, so maybe you wanted, I think you had a blog post about that too, right? Oh yeah. That was the first, that was the yeah. first blog post I wrote for closure. Yeah. It was, um, so, uh, just a, a bit about that. Like, um, I don't know since we're talking about, I won't talk about them too much. And I, I don't really have, like, I don't feel very passionately about, you know, a particular editor. I just know oh, that personally. No, we can't. We can't have an editor <laughs> yeah. flame war on the podcast. It would be no. so much fun. <laughs> no, because I, I, I can't. Uh, I just I flip. I've come so close to flip flopping so many times that I've really just. It seems like it's just a coincidence. Like I'm just reacting at this point. So I don't know what I'm going to be using tomorrow. It'll probably be Vim for a long time though. For some reason, I just like. You know, I don't know what it, I like modal text editing and I like the home row thing, but. I realize that's just me. So yeah, um, but but I I think like when I first came to Closure, and this would have been like 2012, I had people tell me I had good people around me that told me like don't try and learn you know an editor and Closure at the same time. So like that is so even, good advice. Yes. Yeah, I got <laughs> it. And they were very big, very big proponents of or very big you know skilled Emacs users. Let's say I was in a in a shop that was. Uh, so in 2012, my first closure uh, programming job was uh, with a company called RentPath, and they're based out of Georgia. And that was a really great group of people, and I still keep in touch with them. And um, at some, uh, I was lucky enough to be around some people that had, you know, uh, a lot of experience with Lisp and closure, common Lisp. And yeah, that was the advice they gave me: like, don't try to, don't try to switch to Emacs right now, because I was tempted to, you know. And, and not just because of, of the great closure support, because um, Vim has good closure support. And especially back then, five years ago, I think uh, the gap between Vim and Emacs was, Vim and Emacs' support for closure was much smaller. Now it's, it's widening, or it's different, let's say. But back then they were, I think they were, I don't know, maybe they were quite feature parity, but it felt like I could do, it felt like I could do most of the things that my, Emacs using contemporaries we're doing. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so, so I listened to them and I stuck with, stuck with Vim. Also, I saw, um, I saw a talk by, um, oh gosh, I can't remember his name, Chris. It was on, uh, what's the, the musical creation library for closure? Um, 
Are you talking about like Overtown? Overtown, okay. yeah. Chris Ford. Chris yeah. Ford, yeah. At my first, I think, closure conference that I ever attended. And, uh, you know, that's a pretty interactive talk, right? Like he's using, he's using like his editor connected to, a, a, you know, the closure REPL to like generate music on the fly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he was using Vim to do that. So I thought, okay, well, if it's good enough for that, it's probably good enough for me to build websites with it, you know? So, nice. so what, what is your, what is your setup? What do you use? Uh, so I use, so I use NeoVim, which is, um, NeoVim is like a, intended to be like a drop-in replacement for Vim. And um, the, the difference is that uh, NeoVim has eliminated a little bit of the cruft of, of Vim while more or less retaining like feature parity with Vim. But then it's also added some like long-awaited features. So, so for example, NeoVim has a terminal, uh, terminal emulator built in, whereas like Vim, Vim may now, but uh, back then, a few years ago, it didn't. And then... Um, a few other things, there's also, uh, and this is a big reason why I started using NeoVim, was because there's an RPC API for NeoVim. So um, this RPC API is just like, uh, the way you uh, the way you use this this API is just message pack over uh, standard I.O. So essentially you can write like any arbitrary process which can connect to your, um, to your running NeoVim process and, and do stuff to it. Which means you can write a plugin for NeoVim in any language, basically. So, so. is that what you did? Yeah, yeah. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I did. I did that. I wrote like a closure, uh, closure uh, wrapper for that uh, RPC API, and so that like that let me be able to write closure plugins, uh, or sorry, Vim plugins using closure, and I thought that was really cool, and. I think that part of the key to like, I guess, you know, kind of expanding on closure tooling for Vim is being able to write that tooling using closure or at least using Lisp. And that's, that's trying to, that was sort of the goal of that was like giving people the ability to write plugins using closure. So, um, and then from there I used that to, um, to write a plugin to connect with the socket REPL. So uh, this is like an alternative to the existing domain plugin for the most popular plugin for Vim, which is called Vim Fireplace, which does what, uh, you know, it uses uh, the CIDR and REPL middleware and it connects to, you know, you're running NREPL server and it uses NREPL. Um, this is an alternative to that. It uses, uh, it uses the socket REPL and it's just basically like, you know, send some send some plain text over the socket REPL and get the results back and show it in a buffer. It's very, very minimal. It's very, it's very simple. <laughs> There's not much to it. You can run code and you can get docs and that's about it. You can't like jump to a, you know, to a, to a definition or something like that that you can do with other, other tools. So, but I like that. I, I'm like a, a minimalist, you know, I like a kind of a Spartan setup. Um, so, for me, it works, and I've been using it exclusively for months now, and uh, I really like it. Cool. <laughs> so, Neat. yeah, it's out there. All right. So, what's the name of it for people that are looking for it? So the the um, the the client library that'll let you like build any arbitrary plugin is called I think it's called NeoVim Client. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> and then uh, the uh, the socket REPL plugin is called. Uh, socket REPL dot NVIM, 
I think. I don't know. I'm gonna have to. T- I'm gonna oh, have okay. To- well, we'll we'll put it in the show notes. But very yeah. very cool stuff. So yeah, you're a, you're a busy guy too. Um, I think uh, um, uh, you mentioned that you were also pretty involved in the in the community uh, with like a meetup. Oh yeah. Well, I'm. I can't really take. You know, I can't say that I'm involved. Very involved yet, but I'm trying uh-huh. to become involved. So this is a chance for me to plug the the meetup that I'm starting. So okay, like I like I said, I've been living in, you know, python infested rural Florida for five <laughs> years now, and there's no there's not any well attended tech meetups of any kind here, like in like a hundred mile radius. I have scoured this place for them. There have been in the past, but right now there aren't. Mm. And uh, even if I go farther than that, there's really nothing. It's still pretty sparse. Um, there's some Java meetups and some JavaScript meetups and things that I've attended, but you know, nothing so specialized as closure. So. Mm. I don't know. After five years, I've like I really want to just you know be able to attend a tech meetup again. I mean, it, it's like a uh, I miss it. And um, uh, I tried making a functional programming meetup here, and that that crashed and burned. Mm. Um, so what I did was I started just polling all of the large closure meetups on Meetup.com to see if anyone was like interested in doing a remote type option, you know. And no one really took me up on it. But I'm convinced that like if we if we do it right, um, a remote, a fully remote closure meetup could work well because I'm sure there are people, a lot of people like me that are, you know, that don't have access to one, but that still feel like really passionate about closure programming or functional programming or Lisp and just want to get together and talk about it, you know, once a month, like, uh, like any other meetup basically. So, um, and it doesn't even need lots of people really. It only takes a few people, I think, to make a successful meetup. But, uh, so so the catalyst for actually getting things going was finding out that there's this uh, another closure programmer that's uh, uh, actually done some work for Cognitech too. His name's Christian Romney. He um, he was also very very interested in starting it. So we we teamed up. We started the meetup on uh, Meetup.com. It's called Virtual <laughs> Virtual Closure Meetup. And uh, please join it and. Uh, and we're going to hopefully have the first meetup soon. Uh, we, we decided to use Crowdcast.io for the for the you know the platform, the software platform to use, which I think is pretty good and should give us a good interactive experience. And uh, you know our goals are pretty simple, like a monthly meetup with a speaker, maybe two, and then we just want to try and make things as interactive as possible. And I think that's going to be a learning process. Cool. So, so, so anybody, like anybody remote, right? It could be, yeah. it could be, um, you know, maybe outside U.S. too. So definitely anybody, yeah. anybody at all interested okay, in, great. in closure programming. I think we're going to try to stick to the closure, you know, uh, we're going to try to stick to like the closure sphere, but, um, and see if we can get enough people that are interested. But yeah, even if you have a local meetup, you know, still attend our virtual meetup. <laughs> Why not? Should should be uh should be fun. We've got a few people that we've talked to about uh, speaking, and uh, yeah, we're gonna hopefully we're gonna get something going pretty. We're gonna get the first meetup going pretty soon here. Um, and and uh, it's a good experience too, like for for people that are wanting to get into um, you know presenting, um, practicing at a at a meetup, whether it's local or virtual, is a great way to to start getting into that. Yeah. Vet your vet your conference talk with us, please. Yeah, yeah, and there's no pythons, right? That no. or well, not or, for you, for me still. 
But if if you join the virtual meetup, you won't have to worry about the spiders or the or the alligators or anything like that. So yep, <laughs> from the comfort of your own and I and maybe you'll, you'll I, I wonder what we're gonna I wonder how we'll uh, how we'll overcome you know missing uh, the face to face kind of experience. So uh, that that part of it is gonna be the learning process. Yeah, too. I'm really curious about it, but I think it's possible. Yeah, yeah, the have to facilitate the kind of chit chat, you know, that you yeah. usually have afterwards. But uh, you well, know, you, you chit chat and in you know chat rooms too. So I mean, I, I don't see why you can't do it virtually. Yeah, I think it could work. Will, Will Bird did one. I think it's still going on, um, like a mini Cameron hangout. Uh, I think it's weekly, uh, or it was weekly. I attended it originally, and it was done with uh, Google Hangouts. And I think it worked really well. You know, Hangouts is a good platform for like talking and screen sharing and stuff. So, yeah. So it seems like it could work. So we'll see. Cool. Well, we'll have to have you uh, back on, and you can report how uh, how it went and things to do and things maybe not to do. Your learnings from it. All right. Cool. Sounds good. But I'm, you're going to attend it, right? Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, yeah, what, uh, I guess um, looking at some of the other stuff that you've been into, um, there's this thing called SpecViz. Oh, yeah. Yeah, SpecViz is, uh, is another. So I don't, I've, like, just GraphVizzed it up this year. Okay. Uh, a lot of GraphViz stuff for some reason or another. But uh, I started this a while ago also, like, right around, I think, when, when Spec was first uh, announced and closure Spec. And uh, it's just it's a it's a uh, an attempt to visualize closure spec specs. Um, so using graphics specifically using graphics, and this was and this has turned out to be interesting. Uh, people are interested in it, you know. I, like this is the thing that I think I think people have used, and um, I hear people. I think people want a tool to uh, to visualize specs um, and maybe go further, you know, to visualize. Um, you know, conform like spec of validation messages and things like that using a, some sort of graphical visualization. Um, and this was hard. I, I, it's hard to, to figure out like even how to use like a, a certain shape to represent something in spec. Like how do you distinguish between a, you know, a map of spec versus a keys spec versus a tuple spec and like make it, you know, and, uh, what shape is 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 uh, in, in indicates these different kinds of specs intuitively? So that was tough. I mean, I I tried uh, to come up with uh, different ways, and I took from uh, from from other people's ideas that I found out there. Um, but it works. You can vi you can visualize a spec with it. The main thing that I think it's useful for is the dependencies between the specs. Mm. You know, so you can see like which specs are related to the other specs, and that's really. Um, that's really like the best use for it. Uh, I'm not sure that a directed graph is the right choice for for rendering a spec. You know, I don't know. It definitely, like the relationships between them, it works really well. But I don't know about the individual specs themselves. Um, and also, I didn't start uh, doing any of the regex specs because that visualizing regex is like a whole other tough problem. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I I just can't even imagine. I'm trying to wrap my yeah. head around that. That's there's a site out there that you can use to like a website that you can use to test regexes. I forgot the name of it, but they have a decent visualization, but it's not a graph. 
you know, it's like yeah. a, it's not a graph. It's just, I don't know, it's, it's something else. And um, so I would love to get any kind of like input on this or help or I think that there is a, a need for this. Um, I definitely, when I'm developing specs, I definitely do want to visualize them quickly. Like I'd love to be able to just say, you know, uh, hit some like key mapping and boom, you know, look at the whole like spec tree or some subset of it for my for my application that I'm working on. But I don't think that this is quite there yet. But it's a start. It's a start. It's an attempt to create some gravity around that cause, you know. So. And it is, it is like I said, it is useful for looking at the dependencies between your specs. So I'm not trying to uh, uh, sell it short, but I guess it's m mostly like a, a call for help. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, we, we were talking about earlier about your other um, visualization of the state diagrams and how it enabled communication outside your technical team. Um, so I'd imagine if we, if you could get the right um, visualization, then it would help use the specs as a communication tool as well. So. Yeah, yeah, that's a good thought. I, I hadn't even thought about it for non-technical communication, but that makes total sense. Yeah, but you don't have to be worried because, like the the regex is just normally, you know, a regex can make my brain melt. So yeah. if you have it like visualized, I wonder <laughs> if it would also just make my brain melt like even faster. I don't know. I don't know either. I know that that I have had some help uh, from from like I said. There's one visualization that I've seen out there that I do feel like it it, it worked well, but I don't know that it would be good for communicating anything to anyone non-technical. I I don't think so. I don't, know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Maybe if you could visualize them all like in cat pics or something, that would be like <laughs> really interesting. I don't know. Yeah, maybe pythons. <laughs> or pythons. Yeah. <laughs> Either one. Oh, goodness. Well, um, yeah, so um, do you feel like, uh, as we, we've covered a lot of ground, um, is there anything that I'm, I'm kind of missing that you wanted to talk about? Uh, I don't think so. I think you got it all. I, I'm looking at my notes that I made. Oh, I know. I, I got one more thing to talk sure. about. Back to the state machines. So, um, so the you mentioned that there's two articles. Um, the intention is that there's going to be another one, and this is something I'm working on now. And so, what I what I found uh, actually, there's a good book about this out there called uh, I think it's called Using State Charts to Build UI or to Design UIs by a guy named Ian Horrocks. And, uh, and he talks about some of the problems with using uh, state machines or using state transition diagrams to, to uh, you know, in this capacity, like to design UIs. Um, and and more, the, biggest, the biggest problem, I guess, or the biggest con is that um, they, is scaling them is hard. So you hit a point where as your UI complexity starts to increase, the resulting state transition diagram that you're building just gets totally out of control, like duplicate arrows all over the place, and and it becomes uh, it becomes hard to read, hard to understand, and so really not a good solution to that problem because the whole point of using it is to have a model that you can easily understand. So for for simple UIs or for for moderately complex UIs, they work really well, but um, scaling them is 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 challenging. 
or can be. And so there's another notation um, that builds on the state transition diagram notation, and that's called state chart. It's actually part of the, the UML spec state charts. Um, and uh, it's, it's, it's uh, so, okay, so in this book, Horrex talks about how to overcome these limits using state charts. Um, and they're a good tool, but they're a lot more complex than state transition diagrams. Like any developer can look at a state transition, transition diagram and understand it pretty easily, I think. I mean, I think they're very, very primitive and intuitive. And state charts are, are, are not that simple. You know, they're not that same thing. They introduce new concepts like history. Um, they tackle hierarchy in different ways. And they, and they introduce more notation. So you have to, you know, like I said, like I, one of the problems I said I wanted to avoid, or one of the problem, one of the things I, I said earlier, which is why um, I think this approach, the state transition diagram or the state machine approach, works well, is because it's so simple and easily understandable. State charts lack that. You know, mm. they're 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 solving a problem, but there is a cost to that that complexity. Um, I'm not definitely not criticizing them. I think they have a use, and. Uh, uh, there's a good talk out there. Uh, I think it was at this year's Closure Remote Conference um, by Alan Shaw, and he talks about. I think he shows um, how to implement a, a reframe application using state charts. So that's really cool. There was a lot of interesting stuff in that talk, and he specifically he talks about the limitations of using state machines and state transition transition diagrams. Um, but I think I think we can get like more mileage out of state transition diagrams. I think that this is a spectrum and, you know, state transition diagrams are on, on one end of it and maybe state state charts are on the other end of it or some other model is on the other end of it. But I think there are ways to tackle these problems with that you're going to run into when you scale, uh, when you scale your UI, when your UI gets more complex that can be solved with like basic vanilla state transition diagrams. And I think, the way we do that is um, by composing them, uh, composing them together simply. So the next talk, or sorry, the next blog blog post is going to be about how to compose simple state transition diagrams without, you know, becoming something more complex without using state chart notation or anything like that. It's going to be about how to combine these things so that when you have a UI which has, you know, when you have a profile UI with two panes on it and one pane is like personal information and another pane in that UI is, you know, uh, I don't know, credit card information or password reset or something. How do you, how do you have, how do you decompose, uh, how do you, how do you, I guess, how do you create two separate state charts for those two panels and then compose them together into a larger, sorry, state transition diagrams for those two panels two panels and then compose them together into, you know, uh, a top level state machine that you can work with um, simply in the same way that you'd work with any other state machine. So no history, no, you know, I don't know if that makes sense or not, but no, it's it about makes, scaling. No, it makes total, total sense, right? Okay. Yeah, the composability is, is key to closure. So <laughs> that makes sense that that would be the way to build these things up, right? Yeah, and I think closure is a huge part of it too. Closure is like the enabler for a lot of this stuff because I've tried to port these things to JavaScript, and some of it works, and uh, and uh, I think you can get there in, in JavaScript and other languages too. But closure is like closure's rich data literals. Just 
they're so expressive, you know, they make composing these things really well, really easy. So yeah, you're right. It is. Yep. That's a big part of it. So that's the plan for the next blog post. Well, cool. I can't, I can't wait to wait, wait to see it. That'll be really cool. So uh, yeah, we're coming up at the, um, at the hour mark here. Um, so I wanted to make sure that we left time to uh, do our traditional ending which is we like to ask everybody that comes on the show for a piece of advice uh, to share for the listeners. Okay. Yeah, I, I, don't, I think that this is probably advice that someone else has, has shared, but uh, I, I re-encountered it last year, I guess. So I had a chance to work with someone on this project last year that I think was probably one of the best communicators I've ever worked with, like written communication, vocal very effective at communicating ideas and at teaching. And uh, during our many pair programming sessions, what I saw this person doing was that, like, they weren't focusing on not breaking the build or, you know, writing tests or even writing code that compiled. Uh, not that those things aren't important. They are, obviously. But this person was, like, focusing on writing clear, understandable, expressive code with... Uh, you know, to the exclusion of everything else, at least for like a first pass. And a test came later, making compile came later, making it work came later. What really mattered to this person was, does this code clearly communicate the intent, you know, of what I'm trying to build? And it wasn't just the code, it was also the documentation as well. So it, it wasn't always pure code, but it was a combination of, of code and documentation. The cool thing was like, you know, obviously this creates code that's easier to maintain, I think, um, because someone, if, if your code is clear and expressive and communicates the intent very clearly, you know, someone, someone can come in, come behind you, you can come back later and you can look at it and understand it and change it. But that really wasn't what I, what I took away from this. The thing that was cool to me was how easily doing that enabled this person to like hand off that code, even if it didn't compile to other people because the intent was so clear these someone else could just come behind and, and finish it you know so really it helped i think it helped delegating code to, you know it helped delegating work to other people just mm -hmm. that just the clarity in the code helped accomplish mm -hmm. that yeah i think that's a good a good thing to shoot for like code that's very very clear and and expresses the the intent uh very very simply and yeah, there's nothing really novel there, but that's definitely something that I, I try to do these days is I try to think of code as a communication medium, you know, before everything else. Like thinking about it like that, I think helps me write uh, better, clearer code, especially for team settings. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I mean, that a lot of times I've, you know, we're not only, we're trying to communicate to two parties, right? I mean, the the machine. <laughs> yeah. And, but then also to our humans, uh, right. fellow humans, which is important. And I lose sight of that. You know, I, I start thinking about optimizing things and about writing, you know, clever, really, really like concise, terse code. And then, and then I'll lose sight of the fact that even though it's always there, putting that concern first changed things for me. Thinking about it as, as a communication medium for humans. Well, it's been a pleasure having you on, Jeb. And uh, I hope we um, can meet up with you again and talk with you. Uh, later, see how you're progressing in your in your state diagram 
comp- <laughs> compositions, <laughs> staplers, and and uh, you know keeping away from pythons and sharks and spiders. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I really appreciate you having me on, and definitely uh, I'll, I'll hope to come back and talk about it again. And uh, also, uh, just again, remind people join the the virtual closure meetup. Yes, please do. Please check that out. So, all right. Well, thanks again. And this has been the Cognicast. And I'm going to stop recording. You have been listening to the Cognicast. The Cognicast is brought to you by Cognitect. We are a team of thoughtful, experienced technologists. Our passion is helping organizations from the smallest startups to the Fortune 50 deploy technology effectively and humanely. We are here to help you build better futures. You can find us on the web at Cognitech.com and on Twitter at at Cognitech. You can subscribe to the Cognicast, listen to past episodes, and view cover art, show notes, and episode transcripts at our home on the web, Cognitech.com slash Cognicast. You can contact the show by tweeting at Cognicast or emailing us at podcast at Cognitech.com. This week, our guest was Jeb Beach. You can reach Jeb on Twitter where he goes by at Jebberjeb. That's at sign J-E-B-B-E-R-J-E-B. It's a lot of J's and B's. If you're interested in the virtual closure meetup, go on over to meetup.com slash virtual dash closure dash meetup. Our host this week was Karen Meyer, who is at Gigasquid on Twitter. That's at G-I-G-A-S-Q-U-I-D. Think 8 billion arms on Twitter and GitHub. Episode cover art is by Michael Parento. Audio production is by Russ Olson, Joe Smith, and Jarrett Binford. The Cognicast is produced by Kim Foster. Our theme music is Thumbs Up for Rock and Roll by Kill the Noise with Feed Me. I'm Russ Olson. Thanks for listening.